Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... I am Kim Plomp. I am a bioarchaeologist. I study human skeletons, health and disease, and evolution. And I'm Ross Barnett, um, with background in ancient DNA and Pleistocene megafauna. And today we're reviewing the movie Horror Express from 1972. Ross, you found this movie and sent us a very excited email. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd never heard of it, and I assumed it was going to be a kind of terrible B-movie, but it actually stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in apparently one of their many roles together. I don't know if I've actually seen anything they've done together. Has any? Have either of you seen it, something they've done together? Uh, yeah, I think I've, I've seen uh, some of the Dracula films that they were in. But yeah, I can't remember. I mean, this is a rare one where they're both technically the good guys um, rather than Christopher Lee being a baddie and Peter Cushing being the one that has to has to kill him. Of course, they're both in Star Wars, uh, separated by long periods of time. So Peter Cushing's Grand Moff Tarkin and Christopher Lee's Count Dooku, um, which, yeah, terrible names, but, <laughs> but great actors. <sighs> I don't know either of them. <laughs> Literally speechless. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're apparently they're great friends in, in real life, which is, you know, quite nice. So uh, who wants to summarize this one? Uh, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I can, I can do that. Um, all right. So, I mean, going back to what Josh was saying about thinking it being a terrible B-movie, I would say that it's probably... It's it's a good terrible B movie. I mean, it's um, it doesn't have any pretensions to be anything other than it is, which is like a a kind of hammer horror B film. With I mean, we kind of talk about Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in, in quite reverential terms now, but there there were definitely jobbing actors who who took roles and were happy to be typecast. Um, and definitely, you know, Christopher Lee is what six foot four kind of cadaverous looking sinister has a background in the in the secret service in world war ii yeah i think he he was perfect for playing baddies uh, and he kind of very much let into that and, and here he's a good guy for once which is nice so the film is sort of set in um i guess edwardian times so like 1906 is what kind of flashes up on the screen first of all um christopher lee is sir alexander sexton or saxton uh, he's on a Royal Society mission to somewhere in China looking for fossils, and he he finds them. Uh, it's, he's kind of on an expedition in a in a, a cave somewhere with some Sherpas, uh, some some guides, and he finds this uh, very well-preserved, uh, mummified, frozen ape person uh, in the cave. And that, that's kind of where the, the film starts. It looks like a frozen yeti. And he immediately, because this is Edwardian time, says, right, we're having that, uh, and takes it out of the, the, the Chinese cave where it's been found, sticks it in a, in a big box. And then, interestingly, for a fossil, um, he locks that box up with some very strong chains and padlocks. Um, and it is next seen in uh, the, I think it's Beijing or Shanghai railway station, where he's about to ship it back to presumably the British Museum. Uh, where where everything kind of ends up, uh, and so he, he's kind of Saxon is there. He's got his fossil locked up. He's very happy. 
he's trying to get a ticket on the train for himself and his box, um, but it's not going very well because um, the the conductor says there's no room left and he can't get a ticket. And this makes him pretty angry. And then <clears throat> Peter Cushing arrives. So Peter Cushing plays Professor Wells, who is clearly a, a colleague slash rival slash adversary of uh, of Saxon. Um, and so they, they kind of have a bit of banter in the, in the train station. Wells tries to find out what's going on. Uh, he uses his kind of local knowledge to essentially bribe the conductor to make sure that he gets um, the the ticket for the train that he wants and for Saxon to get a ticket for the train as well. And while this is going on in the conductor's office, we see um, that the guard that's been posted to guard the box with the locked fossils inside is being distracted by a, a kind of sneak thief pickpocket kind of person who manages to get the guard to disappear somewhere and has a go at picking the locks off the uh, off the box with the fossil. And then the next thing we see, the pickpocket is dead um, with a very kind of glazed look on his face um, beside the box. And uh, that's where things start to take a turn for the macabre and for the spooky, as you'd expect from a, a kind of hammer horror film. With this dead pickpocket on the floor, before they've even got on the train, um, there's there's a, a kind of um, classic standoff with the, the kind of locals who are shocked at this dead person. Um, the, the conductor's there. Uh, a monk, a kind of Russian Orthodox monk, appears out of nowhere. Uh, and has some big prognostications about how it's not just that he's this pickpocket has died, it's the work of the devil, um, there's something evil in the crate, uh, and everyone kind of dismisses him as a mad monk. Um, but it kind of adds to the uneasiness of the scene. Uh, yeah, they get onto the, onto the train, and they find out that they're both kind of in the same berth. We meet some of the other people. There's a, a policeman on the train, there's the conductor, um, there's the kind of uh, luggage carriage where all the, the luggage is, including the, the fossil box. Um, we meet a Polish countess who, who kind of wants to lock away her jewels um, in the safe beside the, the fossil crate. She has a little dog with her, and while she's flirting uh, madly with Christopher Lee, the, the dog is clearly in some distress by... Um, distressed by whatever's in the, in the box, the fossil, which has, has this uncanny appearance and seems to have killed the pickpocket already. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, as always, I've kind of, there's almost too much to sort of, the way I take notes from these films, I, I never managed to sort of give the, do justice to how the story kind of unfolds. But essentially, uh, Wells is really interested in what's in the box. He kind of bribes the, the the guard on the train to have a look in the box and tell him what's there when everyone's away. Um, overnight, this happens, and of course, the conductor is killed by whatever in the box. It has a really weird, freaky, glowing red eye, which kills the conductor. And we see, for the first time, a hairy arm come out of the, the crate, which has, for reasons unknown, a window in it with bars over it. If you're going to ship a fossil, <laughs> you know, I don't think you need to have a window with bars on your crate unless you want it to escape. So this arm comes out of the, the crate and manages to pick the lock, which is quite impressive for a two million year old mummy. Uh, and it comes out and then it goes back. It, well, it escapes essentially. 
And we see later on that it's put the dead conductor in the box and kind of locked it back up. So the next day they find the dead guards. They've been looking for him. They find that some of the screws on the crate have been taken out. They find that the the fossil itself is missing uh, and that things are are not great. Um, What other stuff? There's a policeman, the kind of chief guard on the on the train is instantly kind of starts to do his job about, you know, there's been a murder, what's going on. He wants to get into the, into the, the mystery of what's happening. And before too much has managed to happen, the ape man, uh, we see it's alive. It's wandering around the carriage. It kills a soldier. So there's soldiers on the train as well. Lights go out, doors open. We, we see, um, professor Wells, that's Peter Cushing, but all this kind of stuff's going on and other parts of the train. Uh, he's having uh, dinner with a mysterious woman, a, a mysterious woman who barged into his berth earlier on and said that she was needed to get out of Shanghai desperately and that she would make it worth his while if he looked after her. Uh, wink, wink. Um, well, obviously, as a 70s film, that's not gone into in too much depth. But he's having having dinner with this woman who's who's essentially very mysterious and, and um, hints at kind of having a mysterious past that Another character who is an engineer joins them at dinner and says that he recognizes this mysterious woman from uh, from somewhere. And she says, no, he can't possibly recognize me. Uh, there's, I mean, it's essentially like, it is a B-movie. I mean, there's no getting away from the fact that it is a B-movie. It's, it's schlocky, but in a good way. Um, it, it's sort of schlocky in probably a way that's been copied many times since it's come out. But uh, it was one of the first to do it in this way. So. Um, while they're all having dinner, Peter Cushing is having the fish, and the fish gets wheeled out, and he, he notices that the the fish's eyes are white, just like the the dead pickpocket and the dead train guard, and that that sends, uh, you know, that that sort of sets the wheels in motion inside uh, Peter Cushing's head, um, and it's it's a clue as to what's going on. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, this is all kind of set up for what is essentially like a a, a crazy beast let loose on a train, a fossil from two million years ago that's come back to life, has been defrosted, and is going around killing all these people in a weird way, which causes them to kind of bleed out of their eyes and ears, and their eyes to end up going white. Uh, and after a few more uh, kills, and after a few more autopsies, so one of the one of the cool things they do is that they do an autopsy on the train guard, and apart from his bleeding from all his orifices and his eyes being white, they awesome. find that his brain is completely smooth, <laughs> which is obviously super weird because uh, if anyone's seen a brain, they know it should be wrinkly. Uh, and this leads to some fantastic exposition as to how the the uh, ape-man fossil must be absorbing the, the knowledge of all these people that it's killing. Uh, and that's why the brains are smooth and that's why it knows how to pick locks and that's why uh, all its victims' eyes turn white. Um, <laughs> that their memories have been erased and have been transferred to the, the ape person. But there you go. And yes, so there's there's more kind of attacks by this this uh, ape person. Uh, we see the mysterious woman that, that Professor Wells was having uh, dinner with try to break into the safe to steal the, the Polish countess's jewels, but she gets attacked by the, the, the ape monster uh, and gets um, brain-smoothed as it were. Um, we find out some more about some of the other passengers. So the mad monk that had 
said that the, the crepe was the work of Satan is actually in the employ of the, the Polish countess for, for reasons that are never satisfactorily explained. Uh, and there's a, the Polish count as well. I, th- I thought I got like a whole Rasputin and... Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, like the whole that whole vibe thing that he was there in the same way that he was Rasputin was for the Queen. Like the spiritual advisor kind of thing. But he's clearly yeah. off his rocker. I mean, he's, he's yes. nuts. Um, he also looks very much like a young Robert De Niro, I thought. Uh, <laughs> and anyway, um, so yeah, so <laughs> we... We um, move from there to, uh, yeah, so the, the mysterious woman has been killed. Turns out she was a, a spy slash uh, jewel thief after the Countess's jewels. Um, the the police are really worried. I noticed that Peter Cushing has on a really exquisite dressing gown at, at one stage. Um, and the, the policeman, who's called Wells, he gets attacked by the, the ape man, but he doesn't get killed. He, he, uh, he just faints um, and recovers it seems fairly well they, they kind of put him back in his birth but he wakes up and there's clearly something going on he's not his usual self and he's very um protective of his left arm he doesn't want anyone to see his left arm but he's the one that shot um, the guy right the, he, the policeman he's he shot the the ape man yeah yeah so the ape man is now being shot by the policeman who's called wells uh no, uh, the policeman is Inspector Mirov. Wells is uh, Peter Cushing. Oh, sorry, Cushing. yes. Sorry, that's right. So Mirov's the policeman. He shot the ape man after all these three murders that have happened. Um, he And the ape man is trying to do the red eye brain smoothing on him, um, but that doesn't work as far as we know. But Mirov, the policeman, does faint and gets returned to his birth. And when he wakes up, clearly something is not right. Uh, the mad monk thinks that the, the ape man is not dead. They, they do an autopsy on the ape man, which involves taking out its one remaining weird eye uh, and, and syringing out the fluid and looking at the fluid under a microscope as well as the, the fluids of the other victims. Uh, and this is where it gets really bonkers. So they look at it under a, a lovely kind of brass microscope and they can see wafting in the, in the eye fluid gunge um, the last thing that the the eye saw, which is, you know, it's a common trope. I mean, it's based in, um, you know, real, I guess, nineteenth century science. This idea that your eye records the last thing you see, and that that could be useful in in crime detection. Um, people did all sorts of experiments of this. It's called optography. Um, it was done by a, a German physiologist called Wilhelm Wilhelm Kuhn, um, looking for. The, the imprint of the last thing that somebody saw in their eye, um, if you just looked at it with a, with a good enough microscope, you could see this image preserved, which would be a fantastic thing for detectives to use in murder cases and things like that. And it, it sort of, it's kind of held over almost even to the, to the modern day. You see it in films. Uh, I know it's, it's a kind of trope in um, Sleepy Hollow when Ichabod Crane, played by um, Johnny Depp, is investigating the murders in the, the Tim Burton version of Sleepy Hollow. He he's intent on looking at the eyes of the of the the dead victims to try and see if he can find out what the last image is, um, so he can solve the case. I remember it from uh, Wild Wild West, where they put a lamp inside a decapitated head, and it's like a projector out of its <laughs> eyes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really quite a sort of fascinating idea. Totally mm-hmm. wrong, but fascinating. But you could see where it came from with with like the first initial photo, um, cameras. 
you could see where yeah. they got that idea. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it makes sense given that the kind of paradigms of the time, uh, and you can see why people kind of went to a lot of uh, effort to try and kind of prove it. Um, but it seems to work in this universe, in the Horror Express universe. Uh, and so um, Saxton and Wells are looking through the microscope and they can see kind of wibbly wobbly images of um, what do they see? When they look at the murder victims, they, they see, they see um, Brontosaurus, a pterodactyl, and the Earth <laughs> yes, from space. That's it. So when they're looking at the, the eye of the ape man, they see uh, Brontosaurus, pterodactyls, and, and the Earth from space, which is a bit weird. But to be clear, this is not burned on the retina. This is a, a, an image that just shows up floating on a drop of blood under the <laughs> eye fluid. Yeah, that's right? right. In the vitreous humor. Um, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it just, it, it, it kind of works in the, in the kind of spooky universe that these guys are in. But yes, I mean, it's been clearly established earlier on that the ape man fossil mummy is 2 million years old, uh, yet somehow he can see brontosauruses and pterodactyls. Uh, which I guess, if you're, um, I guess, what would be the the way to explain it? If you are uh, well, time blind and don't understand, you know, that two million years ago is still sixty four million years after the dinosaurs went extinct. I took um, that to mean because they they also saw something where they saw a cell dividing or something too, didn't they? Because they wanted to show the Dutchess because they were like, you said you don't believe in evolution, but look, there's a picture of it happening or something like that. So I took All it right. as it wasn't the person's eye that it was it was the entity's vision. Right. So but, that's what I took. I mean, it at as. this point, that at this point, we're not really clear that it's an entity. Uh, no, we don't until know we yet. Kind of see the, yeah. Until we see the Earth from space, and we think, well, what eight person has seen the Earth <laughs> from space? Uh, <laughs> they they also say that this uh, alien doesn't store its visual memories in its brain, but it stores the visual memories in the eyeball, which is why they can find them. So presumably, you can't just take a normal human's eyeball and see their their last uh, sight in the drop of the fluid. But it's specifically because this alien stores its visual memories in the eyeballs okay. that this works. But I thought they looked at one of the the victim's eyeball fluids but they looked at and saw so something in that it was a victim oh yeah no you're right it was a victim it wasn't the police officer because he's still alive at this point yeah yeah so it was just a victim maybe we should not try that hard <laughs> yeah. to sort of absolutely sort. i think that's a, a hiding to nothing <laughs> uh yeah so this kind of leads to the the the, the um way of trying to tracking down the monster so they they think that maybe it as the mad monk has said, it's maybe not actually dead. Maybe it's transferred its consciousness. Maybe it's not an ape man. Maybe it's some kind of weird alien. I mean, this is essentially uh, Hammer Horror's version of the thing, uh, the classic, um, uh, I think it's John W. Campbell uh, short story, which has been filmed as The Thing from Another World, uh, The Thing by John Carpenter, uh, and all these other ones of this idea of a shape-shifting alien, which which kind of hides inside people, and you, you have the paranoia of not knowing who's real and who's a uh, who's an alien. Um, that, that's what's going on in Horror Express, except it's set in the, on a train in the uh, 1900s. Uh, but yes, anyway, the the um, the kind of idea starts to take hold that this is something more than just a, a kind of reanimated fossil. That it's a, a weird kind of entity that kind of sucks your brains out through your eyes can tr can be transferred from individual to individual and absorbs memories and that's that's uh, quite a scary thing um 
the monk obviously has been part of this conversation and he says it's the eye of satan he he's very much um obsessed with satan and he steals the eye once they've they've kind of had this uh, expositionary scene about the images that are stored in the in the eye gunk the monk steals the eye and thinks that he can get in touch with the entity and give it back its eye and that will be that will be good for him um we see that the entity is in fact not actually dead. It's transferred to Mirov, the, the policeman. That he was hiding his arm because it's turned into a hairy arm, which doesn't really make sense in terms of the the kind of rules of um, you know why why would it yeah it doesn't it doesn't make sense arm. like it took no. the there's no the logic no arm yeah yeah uh, but anyway uh, so he kills the conductor because the conductor was wanting to stop the train, which again doesn't seem like a something that would really care about it can just hide in another person but saxon and wells come up with the idea that if they can check everyone's eyes that might be a way to tell if anyone's become the entity and so that they do this in in the uh in the train um they they kind of look at everyone's eyes and everyone passes the ta- the test including mirov the policeman who we actually know is the is the entity uh, because he's got the hairy arm and he has killed uh, the train en- uh, conductor. He's also killed the, the engineer who had been um, uh, Wells and the mysterious woman's dinner companion. Um, there's, there's a fantastic <laughs> line when they're uh, trying to discover who the, who the entity is. Uh, I, can't, I didn't write down who it's between, but I think it's, it might be Mirov actually, who is the entity, he says to, to Saxon and Wells that, that any one of us could be the monster. Uh, and Wells, Peter Cushing says, monster, we're British, you know, which is <laughs> just, just amazing. I thought I misheard <laughs> that at first suggest? and I had to go back and listen no. again because I was like, no, they didn't say that. <laughs> they did say that. They did say that. Um, so yeah, so everything's kicking off. Um, they're, they're in real danger and the, their eye test hasn't worked. But then they have a realization that every time the murders have, have occurred, the lights have been off. And so maybe the eye test only works when the lights are off. And so that's why their eye test failed. Um, they need to switch the lights off and that's when the eyes will turn red uh, and they'll be able to figure out what's going on. So things are kind of at a, a pretty critical point on the train. And then, um, yes, what else has happened? The monk, the mad monk, has pledged his service to Mirov, who, he, who he's realized is the, the entity. He's given him the eye um, and, and said he pledged himself to Satan. So I mean, obviously his his years of training as a in uh, in the seminary haven't really stuck with him if if he's that easily swayed to um, to the dark side. Anyway, so it switches away from the train completely, and we we meet um, this bit I didn't really understand. We go to what appears to be like a Cossacks um, train station where the the the, the head Cossack is Telly Savalas, who who goes about chewing scenery like left, right, and center. He's nursing a hangover. He's in a jail cell with uh, an unnamed woman under some fur blankets. Someone's told him he has to stop the train, orders from Moscow or something. Um, so Telly Zavallis takes his, his uh, platoon of Cossacks onto the train. He gets sort of shouted at by the Count and Countess, the Polish Count and Countess, for, for them having to sort of spend time with the plebs on the rest of the train, and he allows them to disappear off. The I'm glad you didn't understand this either, because I was like, where did this guy no. come from like what is happening yeah how, yeah what 
But I mean, it's great because Telly Savalas is just like acting up a storm. He, he's really relishing his his role as the the kind of Cossacks leader. Anyway, he comes, he goes onto the train, tries to figure out what's going on. While this is happening, everyone's a bit nervous. Uh, Saxton, uh, Christopher Lee's character, switches off the gas supply to the lights to try and flush the entity out into the open, uh, which this does. So Mirov is the uh, the entity. He goes about killing all the Cossacks really easily. Uh, none of them tend to put, seem to put up a fight apart from Telly Savalas, uh, who, who kind of writhes all over the place and, and has a, a kind of five-minute death scene. And then the monk helps to kill the soldiers. Everyone's shooting at everyone. Does the monk, um, does the Mirov, the policeman, get killed? as the entity and then somehow transfers his consciousness to, to the monk who's called Pujardov. I thought the monk uh, asked a, for it. The monk like sacrificed Yeah, the himself. monk asked for it. He, he, he's clearly on board with the entity um, and wants to be its next vessel. So uh, Mirov is killed, the policeman is killed, but transfers to the monk. The monk uh, goes to the, the Count and Countess. They're the only two passengers that weren't with the rest of the train. Um, we kind of get a bit of insight into the 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 monk's previous life when he's speaking as the entity uh, which has absorbed all of his memories he says that the monk was in love with the countess um blah 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 he's going to kill everyone but then saxton arrives christopher lee arrives just in time they have a little bit of uh kind of philosophical banter then all the dead people come back to life so this is a new power that we didn't realize um <laughs> he possessed before this exact moment so Telly Sabalis comes back to life. All the, the the Cossacks and soldiers come back to life, uh, and they 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 decide to charge Saxon and Wells and all the passengers to try and and kill them. These kind of zombies uh, take over the train, you know, train to Bazan sort of style. Meanwhile, again, uh, somehow there there has been message sent from the train to Moscow and from Moscow to the next. Uh, station on the on the railway track that the train is traveling through and they've been told to divert the train which will luckily uh, send the train off an unfinished <laughs> railway track and down a really steep gorge so this is the this is what happens they 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 change the points um to put the the train on a essentially a, a suicide um course while this is happening as well uh wells and saxton have managed to disengage the one carriage which is the last carriage, which has all the passengers on it, um, and luckily doesn't have any of the entity or the the reanimated zombie soldiers on it. Uh, and so the train careens off the unfinished track and explodes into a thousand bits at the bottom of the gorge. But luckily, the one carriage that has all the passengers in stops like just at the very last second on the last bit of um, of train track. And so that's the end of Horror Express the entity from another world uh, and all its zombie soldier slaves are dead and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and all the passengers um, have survived. It was a bit disconcerting how easily the guys in charge of like the rail track, they just get this one message saying to like kill everybody on the train. And they're, they're like, okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah. You know, life is cheap in, in uh, Tsarist Russia, I guess. Yeah. But no, I mean, even from just sort of listening to myself with that that um, overview, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. You have to watch it, to, and even then, it doesn't really make sense. Um, but it, it it's essentially the thing on a train, um, yes. but with seventies aesthetics, um, which makes it quite fun. 
Yep, and Mammoth as well. Uh, I haven't seen the thing, but uh, what? in this movie, <laughs> yeah, I know, I got to see it. But in this movie, the uh, entity can hide in anybody, and that's what like makes the tension. But the audience never doesn't know where it is. So yeah. like maybe there's tension for the passengers, but not really as the audience. It's uh, there's not really any mystery to no. it. Which is what makes the thing so brilliant, and what makes this film not so brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've already nitpicked a little bit of the science of uh, <laughs> of eye memories. What did you call that field? Optography. Optography. Uh, there isn't all that much about anthropology or paleontology to talk about. They only have a few little sciencey lines, but uh, there's not that much. Um, the main thing is that he says over and over is that the ape is 2 million years old. Uh, and that got me thinking about how old did we know or think the Earth was in 1906, which mm. is a little difficult to Google. Uh, there's actually uh, a Wikipedia page about the age of the Earth <laughs> going over uh, the whole process of how we learned how old the Earth is. Yeah. I mean, my kind of memory of it is that until um you know Marie Curie and dis discovery of radioactivity and then Kelvin Lord Kelvin's um use of radioactivity expl to explain the 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 heat of the earth the sort of scientific understanding is that the earth wasn't that old because it couldn't be that old because it was still pretty hot uh, inside so but there was some there was some geologists who recognized that and paleontologists that recognized that the timing that it would take to fossilize would would be a long, long time. Yeah, which is really interesting because you you have you know these fairly kind of fundamental um, clashes between different branches of of science uh, quite early on. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, like like Kim says, between geology and physics, mm -hmm. and essentially, you know, in that case, geology was right and physics um, needed a bit more information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Lord Kelvin was one of the people who made the first estimates, and he was basically just going off of the assumption that the Earth started off as a molten ball, and it's been uniformly cooling, and that gave him estimates. He kept revising his estimates, but they were anywhere from like 20 million to maybe like 100 or maybe 400 million at the most, and he kept like sort of gravitating back to like 20 to 40 million years, which is... Uh, the age of the Earth as we know it today is four and a half billion years, so that was way off. And the thing he was missing was radioactivity and also convection. Uh, so there was somebody else uh, towards the end of the 1800s that uh, created a model that incorporated convection, and they came up with a number of about two to three billion. Uh, Not bad. But yeah, but that was pretty much ignored <laughs> oh. <laughs> because it didn't uh, match up with the prevailing wisdom. Uh, and then, yeah, it was once we got into understanding radioactivity in the early eighteen or the early nineteen hundreds uh, that they started to get better and better estimates, and they sort of keep getting closer and closer until like the nineteen sixties or whenever it was that we got our current understanding. Mm. And so the movie takes place in nineteen oh six. It looks like there was a guy, I forgot his name, who was use, doing estimates based on radioactivity, uh, uh, like sort of measuring radioactive decay, what would become 
uh, radioactive radiometric dating. And he was getting estimates of hundreds of millions of years old uh, in 1905, but he didn't publish them until 1907. Uh, so it's pretty interesting that this movie's right at 1906, mm. right in the middle of when we were starting to get better answers to this question. Yeah. Uh, the other harder question to answer is how old did we think human fossils in the Pleistocene uh, were during this time? Uh, because it, it's very hard to Google like the history of the age of the Pleistocene because it just gives you the age of the Pleistocene if you Google that. So I couldn't find that answer. Does anybody know that? Well, when was Piltdown Man? Piltdown Man was around that time, wasn't it? I think it's a bit later. I yeah. think it's like um, 1910s for Piltdown. 1912, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's also interesting that, that all the way through the film, they, they, they're very clear about this, this fossil being 2 million years old when, you know, how do they get an absolute date from a fossil at that time before uh, radiometric dating could be used or un, as well beyond the, the limits of um, kind of relative dating with, with um, kind of literary sources. It also wasn't a fossil. It had soft tissue. Like, it was decomposing. Absolutely. <laughs> So maybe it wasn't a fossil at all. Maybe it was a yeti. I yeah. mean, that, that's that's what that would make much more sense. That would actually just a recent one. A recent one, yeah. yeah. That winter. Well, there, there's the other question because it was frozen, but uh, China was never glaciated uh, during the Pleistocene, was it? Not certainly not continuously to keep something frozen. No, since then. But I imagine that uh, I guess this could be from some of the Himalayan mountains, um, which would have been frozen. If it's from well, some of the disputed territories. There's the other thing, because they they say it's from Manchuria, but the title card says they're in Sichuan province, which are two very different places in China. So uh, it's a little bit unclear about where it actually came mm. from. But if it's up a, a mountain, then yeah, tops of mountains have been called, uh, and in caves has been called, uh, whether it's okay. a Pleistocene or not. But yeah, I think, I think Yeti makes more sense. One of my, well... I mean, there was a lot of things that didn't make sense, but so the entity said that it's been on Earth for a long time in different living forms. And it said it started as in a protozoa and then it went on to different life forms. So how would it have gone? Like, did it adapt as it moved from life form to life form? It adapted how it moved around mm -hmm. too, because protozoa wouldn't have eyes. And then if it could move to a protozoa, then probably didn't die in the train wreck. It just could have just then moved into anything that was in the soil, yeah. any microbe or anything like that, right? Or a, a bit of E. coli in one of its victims' guts, or you know, yeah, who knows? exactly, and then just start again. But then, how would it if those yeah. don't have eyes? So, is it just sensory organs? <laughs> is it like would it work with any kind of um, energy? Yeah. Thing I, I think don't know. This is why we. We'd all be first to die in any kind of horror film scenario because we'd be too busy trying to figure out the, the flaws in the, in the horror film logic. Uh, and then we'd get brain smoothied by this, uh, this ape while we're thinking. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we could talk about the brain smoothie a little bit because they, they do try to explain. I mean, the idea they talk about is that the wrinkles of the brain sort of correlate to like cognition so like uh animals that are do less thinking i guess have smoother brains and humans have very wrinkly brains and so the whole concept of the wrinkly brain is that um your 
cognition is based on connections within the gray matter. So if you can take a, a surface area that's way too large and then wrinkle it up, you can fit more connections into a brain. So, I mean, they're right in the sense that, you know, all of the wrinkles in your brain give you more thinking power, but they suggest that those wrinkles come from your thinking during life, which carves the channels into your brain, which, uh, <laughs> of course, doesn't make any sense because babies start off with wrinkly brains. And your memories would be et etched on your brain, too. That's what they said. It's kind of a sweet idea, isn't it? The it is. idea that if you think really hard, you're just like wrinkling the inside of your brain. Uh, also, the uh, opposite of that, where if uh, you forget something, then suddenly a, <laughs> a, a, a fissure sort of smooths over. <laughs> I, but I could see them thinking, yeah. maybe if not exactly like exactly that, but some somewhere like that at the same time as they were thinking that it could be possible that the eyes were retaining the last image or something. Like to me, that that seems to fit together with that type of biological understanding. Yeah. It's like nineteenth-century mm -hmm. science cutting edge 19th century science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there isn't really a lot of paleontology or anthropology in, in the film. <laughs> or um, science. <laughs> apart, or science. Yeah. Or, or sense um, <laughs> or logic. Um, but yeah, uh, Peter, Peter Cushing and, and uh, Christopher Lee are supposed to be scientists and Christopher Lee, according to the title card is uh, working for the Royal Society when he's out mm -hmm. kind of fossil collecting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's uh Fairly non-scientific, I think. We're, we've, we're giving it too much credit by actually discussing some of the nonsense um, <laughs> in there. <laughs> One of my favorite lines was when um, the doctor who was romancing the art uh, jewel thief before he knew she was a jewel thief, because um, she was going to had to stay in his cabin, so he obviously thought he was going to get lucky. And so he went mm -hmm. up to the doctor, the female doctor that he had been traveling with, and he said, like, I'm going to need your help tonight. And she kind of just looks over at the young woman and it's like, well, I would expect so at your age. <laughs> I mean, I, I heard that line. like, surely they can't mean that, what, what everyone's thinking they mean. I mean, that is super risque for a, yeah. for a 70s uh, What film. would they have used before Viagra? I guess it would have been um, just some herbal <laughs> stuff. I mean, or... she... God knows, God knows. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. She she's a character I didn't really talk about in the um, in the overview. But uh, Peter Cushing, the Professor Wells, has a a female lab assistant stroke, I guess, uh, dog's body stroke. You know, she yeah. does everything for him. Yeah. Um, and she she seems to be far more competent than he is. Yes. Um, I mean, I was thinking, does this film pass the Bechdel test? Does do any of there's quite a few female characters. There's the the female jewel thief. There's the female countess. There's the um, the, the female doctor. lab assistant. I don't but think so. Yeah. Do any of them talk to each other about anything that isn't um, one of the male characters? There was a moment when the jewel thief and the duchess or the countess were together in the same room because that was when I the first time I realized they were the same different people. Because they look very similar. <laughs> yeah, they, they did. Um, but I don't know what they spoke. Mm. Uh, is that the one where um, the engineer had just been killed? Uh, is that the the two women that were... Because there were two women in, in that car when they were uh, just sort of hovering over the engineer's body discussing how he was killed. But the engineer gets killed after the jewel thief gets killed. Yeah, she dies first. Ah, well then, who was the woman that the engineer was with in his cabin then? That was uh, just a random woman. She's never really oh. explained. So there are two. I think the uh, 
the countess was also there. So there's that random woman and the countess in the same scene. But I think they're mostly just talking about the engineer's death. Mm. Which so. is technically about a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. <sighs> but yeah, I think if, if I was watching, I mean, it's got quite a good reputation and quite a high IMDb score. It's um, a good, bad, I can scary see how, movie. Yeah, it's a good, bad film. Yeah. Which is off its time, but is still interesting enough that a kind of modern audience might get something out of it. Yeah, and it's corny and cheesy in an enjoyable way. Yeah, it's good acting. I think Telly Tavares is fantastic at just how much scenery he chews. Like, he's really relishing his role as a, a crazy um, Cossack soldier um, and just does his most overacting. Yeah, I think I must have, a cat must have distracted me or something at the scene when he came in because then when I, like, I looked away for half a second and then it the cast had changed and like everything. I was like, what's, where did this person yeah. come from? Why is he in charge? <laughs> I went back to rewatch it and I couldn't really understand why uh, he got involved mm. in the situation at all. Yep. Anyway. Uh, here's something I'm not sure if it's a 1906 thing or a 1970s thing, but uh, when... Saxon first meets the engineer. He asks him about uh, the chalk because the uh, the uh, monk tried drawing a right. cross on the crate with chalk yes. and it wouldn't draw. Yes. And so the engineer asks him how to explain that scientifically. And <laughs> Professor Saxton says, hypnosis, and yoga. yoga. <laughs> These mystics can be terribly convincing. I think that's a 1970s thing. Yeah, I laughed at that. That was yeah. funny. I mean, the chalk could have just not drawn on that particular fabric either. Yeah. The monk was so great, though. I kind of, He was kind of my favorite character because it was so overblown, yeah. Re- Rasputin-ish. Yeah. And then he he changed from the devil in this car, you know, we all, God must this, God must that, to I'm going to curse you and now I want the entity in me. Like, he went to the mystic really yeah. quickly, right? Yeah, absolutely. He went from, you know, this place is cursed to, uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll be your living vessel. That's yeah. fine. And he was always like hunched over in the way that, like, he was just, yeah, it was a good. Mad staring eyes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think he was my favorite character. And did nobody else think he looked like Robert De Niro? Was that, was that just me? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't see that. No. I didn't think about it, but no. I'll have yeah. to go back and look. <laughs> There's some nice exchanges where they kind of talk about evolution in a 1906 sort of way mm. um so the countess has heard of it and says that it's immoral or, or yeah. something to that effect yeah which is probably a fairly common 1906 view yes so at least uh, you know it gets mentioned well and they said that there was something in the eye that they saw that would prove to her or show her that evolution happens. But I, I couldn't quite understand yeah. what it was that they the, saw. Maybe the picture of the, the dinosaurs. Yeah, maybe. Which are very clearly, you know, 1970s dinosaurs, um, <laughs> which is always quite fun. But I mean, as, as great as these kind of films of this uh, shape-shifting alien are, the thing or um, Horror Express or whatever, how would something like this evolve? I mean, it's essentially, it's not something that, that would be possible as far as my understanding of of um how life evolves takes place there there would be there could never be uh a, a kind of selection pressure on something to to mimic so many different hosts i mean where, where we see kind of uh the evolution of, of really good camouflage it's only for a single um a single thing um 
and you know when when a uh, you have a butterfly that's that's mimicking a leaf, it doesn't take on the the characteristics of a leaf. Um, no. It doesn't absorb the memories of a leaf or anything like that. It just looks quite like a leaf. Well, um, and also he said the entity said that they came to Earth and then they left him, and then he spent time waiting. So he's been on the entity's been well. I'm saying he, I don't, we don't need to gender it, I suppose, but. It was, they, it, they, it was on its own, so it couldn't have adapted in that way. It, it could, mm. itself could change how it did things, but it wouldn't have been evolution, right? Because it's not, it never reproduced, mm-hmm. I suppose. But, uh, I mean, we must be talking about something supernatural because it's not, you know, shape-shifting. It's sort of like possessing like a yeah. like a ghost or something, yeah. right? So it doesn't even have a physical body. It's not even something that science can study, right? Yeah. And it's not it's, only it's, possessing, but it's also taking, like it's altering body too, because it's memories hairy arm. from millions of years ago <laughs> are in the eye liquid, the vitreous eye liquid of one of its victims. So yeah. it's it's not just possessing it's like altering it's making their eyes red and their arms hairy yeah the arm even of the fossil thing fossil in quotations it was like well preserved it was just a hairy arm and then the face was all bone and skin like decomposing like a Mm. mummy or something like that so maybe the arm was special and they just forgot to mention why maybe i mean the 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 kind of the the way they did the the kind of mummy looked quite good i mean for for the for the 70s it was quite freaky looking it was scary uh, yeah. like him says with the the decomposed uh flesh and the only one eye working mm-hmm. i thought it was quite cool mm-hmm. we also really only see it in darkness mm-hmm. which <clears throat> uh makes it hard to study as a anthropologist when i want to see it clearly <laughs> but it like works well for the for the movie yeah and i guess at two million years uh in China or the kind of Chinese East Asian region, you have a couple of uh, potential kind of hominids that that um, could have formed the the mummy. Yeah, Homo erectus. Yeah, the Denisovan ancestor as well, maybe. If it is two million years old, which I think we can say that they have no way of knowing that in 1906, mm-hmm. that's got to be a wild guess on his part. But. Um, would we have had hominids in or hominins in China at two million years? Because the earliest outside of Africa that we know about is uh, Dimanisi in Georgia, which is about one point eight million. Do we have anything older than that at this point? I don't think so. Um, but I think when you're for a movie like this, they actually, you know, at least there was hominins in that area at one point eight million. I mean, that's just finding one more fossil that puts pushes the date back a bit more, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like there was one in Zhao something, but I don't know if that was earlier. Yeah, I mean, Dominici's the yeah, I, I think still counts as the earliest outside yeah. of Africa of of Homo at least. I mean, you have, I mean, my kind of partial understanding is there is some sort of tentative and circumstantial evidence for maybe pre-Homo outside of Africa in, in yeah. the the kind of uh, lithic records of of. Um, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, places like that. Wikipedia says that there's stone tool evidence pushing it back to 2.12 million years in China. Yeah. Hmm. 
Uh, I don't remember what uh, Matt Toscheri told us when we were talking about Homo floresiensis, but there's the idea that uh, these small hominins in Southeast Asia uh, maybe came from an earlier migration before Homo erectus, mm. which would have been, you know, before two million years ago. But what would that have been? Something more like Australopithecus, I guess. Mm. Since uh, Homo floresiensis has some alleged Australopithecus traits. Mm. Another uh, interesting thing to think about with regards to the time period for this movie in 1906, uh, it's easy to think about all the different hominin species it could be right now, like that we know of today. But at the time, there were only two other identified human species, which were Neanderthals and Homo erectus, which at the time would have been called... Uh, Pithecanthropus? Pithecanthropus, Pithecanthropus erectus, mm. yeah. So Neanderthals were known from the early 18, 1800s, uh, but not named until 1856, I think, when the Neander Valley fossil was discovered. So I think they had like maybe three Neanderthal specimens uh, up to the 1850s. Mm. And all the uh, naturalists in uh, Western Europe were speculating about where they should find the earliest human ancestors and uh, Darwin and others thought Africa, which turned out to be correct. But other people thought Asia. And that's why uh, Eugene Dubois went to uh, Indonesia in 1891 to try and find human ancestors. And he did. He found Homo erectus bones, but he named them Pithecanthropus erectus. And as far as I know, at 1906, those are the only human uh, hominin fossils that we had, maybe some more Neanderthals from Europe. Uh, and then as we know, in 1912, they, uh, there was the, um, Piltdown hoax, which, uh, people believed in a lot because it suggested that the earliest human ancestors came from England, which, uh, uh really, they really liked that idea. <laughs> and then it's not until like the 1920s that we found Australopithecus in Africa. Yeah. Uh, the Tong child, I think, is the first Australopithecus yeah. identified in Africa. 1924 for, for Tong. So uh, in 1906, there was almost no human fossil record. Uh, Which would explain why the Royal Society is sending him out to, to find them, I guess. And because Eugene Dubois had just uh, 15 years earlier identified human fossils in Indonesia, so it makes sense that they'd be looking in China. Yeah. Of course, they did find a lot of stuff in China later. The uh, Dian Cave was excavated in the 30s, I think. Yeah, pre-World War II anyway. Yeah. But can you imagine the write-up? I mean, the Royal Society <laughs> are going to want to have uh, a manuscript for, for their expedition. Uh, yeah. <laughs> can you imagine the, the, the kind of... Uh, you know, conclusions. In conclusion, we we discovered a extraterrestrial entity inside our fossil, which killed about a dozen people on our train ride home. But we saved the other. Do not recommend. Yeah, yeah. Do, we do not recommend fossil hunting in this region. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, if there's uh, any of the fossil remains to pull out of the train wreck, I I feel like the the report is going to be very just focused on the fossils and then there's going to be a little footnote in there like oh by the way incidental to the fossils there was an alien possessing it but it actually has nothing to do with the fossils so that's a totally yeah. different paper <laughs> yeah if you've been enjoying screens of the stone age get in touch with us follow us on twitter at sotsa underscore podcast and on facebook at sotsa podcast 
or send us an email to screensofthestoneage at gmail.com. Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca.